from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. On this episode of Newt's World... Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. D-Day has a very special meaning for me. On D-Day, my own son graduated from West Point. On the very day he was graduating, these men came here, British and our other allies, Americans, to storm these beaches for one purpose only, not to gain anything for ourselves, not to fulfill any ambitions that America had for conquest, but just to preserve freedom, systems of self-government in the world. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. You and I and our government must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. We cannot mortgage the material assets of our grandchildren without risking the loss also of their political and spiritual heritage. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. Hi, this is Newt. Due to the virus, I'm recording from home. So you may notice a difference in audio quality. Dwight David Eisenhower was the supreme commander of the Allied forces in Europe during World War II and the 34th president of the United States. Eisenhower understood war as only a soldier could. He set in place a strategy for winning the Cold War that was followed and implemented by future presidents until the collapse of the Soviet Union. 
Eisenhower's prescience and his strategic understanding of science and technology in establishing the United States as a preeminent world power was essential to securing freedom for generations of Americans to come. Eisenhower was influential in bringing World War II to an end and his efforts throughout the war, especially with the planning and execution of D-Day, stopped the Nazi war machine. He also ended the Korean War and maintained active communications with the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Dwight David Eisenhower's dedicated service to our country spanned 50 years. In order to do his life justice, this episode is part one in our three-part The Immortals, Dwight David Eisenhower series. We're going to talk about one of the true immortals, Dwight Eisenhower, General of the Army, President of the United States, and a remarkable example of what has made America truly a unique country with opportunities for virtually everyone. Ike, as he was known, was actually born in Denison, Texas in 1890. He was the third of seven sons. And in 1892, the family returned to Abilene, Kansas, which then became their home for the rest of his youth. And in fact, his mother still had a place there at the end of her life. I graduated from Abilene High School in 1909 and for two years worked at the Bell Springs Creamery. He wanted to go to Annapolis, but there wasn't an opening. But in the process, he did get an opportunity to be appointed to the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, New York. He played on the football team, which at that time was one of the great powerhouses of American college football. He injured his knee. And in sort of a typical example of Eisenhower's stubbornness and toughness, while his knee was injured, the officer who was training them into horsemanship, because back then, remember, the cavalry was still a very real factor, was mad at Eisenhower and got him to spend the afternoon mounting and dismounting. Eisenhower did not point out that his knee had been injured playing football. And as a result, it was permanently weakened and his career as a player was over. In some ways, that may have been good because Ike then discovered since he couldn't play, he could coach. And so as a student coach, he began to learn the art of building teams, getting people to work together, setting very high standards. And he became one of the preeminent trainers in the American military, somebody who really understood how to train people. Then when he graduated from West Point, he ended up marrying Mamie Geneva Dowd from Denver, Colorado. Their first son, Dow Dwight, was born in 1917 and tragically died in 1921. Their second son, John Sheldon Dowd, was born in 1922 and went on to have a very successful career in his own right and to write several very, very good military history books. So here's Eisenhower in the very small peacetime American military, serving in camps, Fort Sam Houston, Camp Wilson, Leon Springs, Texas and Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia, and then World War I comes along. Ike ends up being the trainer at the Army's first tank school, which is at Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. He falls in love with Gettysburg, and later in his life, he'll go back and buy a farm there. But he's very frustrated because while he's training all of these brand new tankers using this new technology that literally had only been invented in the last couple of years during the war itself, he wasn't getting to go into combat. He wasn't getting any experience in the battlefield. And in fact, the most famous person who was taking Eisenhower's trainees from the tank school was George Patton, who was serving in combat, who was in Europe, and who at the time was substantially more famous than Eisenhower. So the war ends with Ike never having gotten into combat. And he and George Patton become close friends because they're both fascinated by the tanks. And it's really interesting, all the places this leads Ike, that he would never have on his own thought of. He wrote a terrific book called At Ease, Stories I Tell My Friends. And one of the stories in that book is about his participation in the first transcontinental motor convoy. Now, for those of us who drive in the interstate highway system, it's easy to forget that as recently as 1919, it was considered an enormous adventure and a great challenge to take a convoy from the East Coast to the West Coast. 
And Ike talks in this book about being somewhere around Nevada, sleeping out under the stars, because, of course, back then there were no motels and hotels because there was no highway traffic. So he's out there and he's thinking to himself, shouldn't we have a highway system that we knit together that lets the whole country travel? And has no idea in 1919 that, in fact, in 1955, he will propose the national interstate highway system, which all of us use. And in a way, it leads directly back to what was a pretty long trip. He left on July 7th and arrived on the West Coast on September 6, 1919. Imagine how quickly you and I can go today, in part thanks to Eisenhower's leadership. Then in one of those historic moments, in 1922, he is sent to serve as the executive officer to General Fox Connor in the Panama Canal Zone. Now, Connor really matters. Connor, in some ways, may have been the most influential single officer in the American military in the 20th century. He worked for Pershing when Pershing was in charge of the American army in Europe, and he learned enormous lessons of leadership. He was a great student of military history and military theory. He had a large personal library, and he trains two people, George Catlett Marshall, who was on to become chief of staff of the army, and Dwight David Eisenhower. And it's a fascinating story. I always tell officers when I talk to them about this that they can't quite imagine this because in the 1920s, the truth was, as an executive officer, Eisenhower didn't have that much work to do. He could get all of it done in about a half a day. He didn't have all the mountains of regulations, the lawyers, the bureaucracy, all the things we've encumbered ourselves with. And so he literally had about half of every day free. And Connor said, I want you to take that half day and I want you to study because I have great faith in you and I think you have a great future. So I spent the two years working for Connor to really learn an enormous amount, read all the major works, and then goes back to the States. And here's one of the great examples of why history is so much different from the social sciences. Ike had gotten in trouble right after the war because he and Patton had written articles that actually, if you go back and read them, are forerunners of the Blitzkrieg. They believed in tanks. They understood the power of tanks, the importance of speed. And so these two guys, one the great trainer, the other the great combat commander, were co-authoring articles about tanks as a key feature of warfare. Well, this just really infuriated the head of the infantry, who didn't like tanks and didn't want to see tanks as an independent arm. He wanted tanks to only be in support of infantry. He wanted them to be heavy and slow. Eisenhower and Patton wanted them to be very fast and capable of moving much faster than infantry could move. And so the two guys are basically called in and told, look, you keep doing this and we're going to kick you out of the army. So Patton, who's always much more willing to bend than Eisenhower was, cheerfully wanders off and becomes part of the Olympics. He's a great horseman. And so he's part of the American Olympic team and wins medals. Eisenhower, however, is stubborn, gets in a pretty tough dialogue with the head of the infantry. And so when Ike comes back, he's told very bluntly by the chief of infantry, I'm not going to let you go to the intermediate school you need to go to. And this was a school that was at Fort Benning. It was the infantry sort of mid-level school. Well, historically, if you didn't go to that school, you could not go to the command and general staff school at Fort Leavenworth which was the key to future promotions. And in effect, the chief of infantry was saying to Ike, I'm ending your career. So Eisenhower sent a telegram to Fox Connor and he explained what was going on. And he got this very cryptic telegram back that said, you will receive new orders, accept them without question. He has no idea what's gonna happen. And he suddenly gets an order transferring him from the infantry to the adjutant general's command to be in charge of a recruiting post in Denver. Now, as Ike says in his own memoirs, this was a death knell. When you got transferred over to running a recruiting office, they were telling you, your days in the military are just about over. But Fox Connor, who he trusted totally, had said to him, obey whatever orders you get. So he switched over. And lo and behold, the following week, now that he was in the adjutant general's command, all of a sudden, he gets a new order. 
because the adjutant general has several slots for the command and general staff school. And so he's skipping the intermediate school at Benning, and he's being assigned to go to the command and general staff school. And he immediately writes Fox Connor and says, how can I go to the top school if I've never gotten all the intermediate training? Connor writes back and says, look, for the last two years, I have given you all the books that they will use at Leavenworth. You are entering the school knowing more about the courses than anybody else in your class, and you're going to do great. So he got there, and Ike was a very hard worker. He was adequately smart, but his greater characteristic was a willingness to work really hard, which he picked up in Kansas as a young kid. And when he got there, a good friend of his, a guy named G. Giro, was also in the class. And they set up an entire bedroom. They took it over, and it became their study room. And the two of them would work every night, and they would work on the weekends. And when they got done, Eisenhower was first in his class, and they'd also created a lifetime friendship. So he then goes back to Benning to serve as executive officer in an infantry regiment. I've never actually seen how the head of infantry dealt with all this, because it must have been just enormously frustrating. He's trying to punish Eisenhower, and instead what has happened is Ike has jumped ahead of the rest of his class because he's already gone to the senior command school for the U.S. Army. Ike is then assigned to go to Washington to write a guidebook to World War I for the American Battle Monuments Commission, which was headed by General John J. Pershing, who had been the head of the American Army in World War I, and who was really the dominant force in the 1920s in the American Army. So Eisenhower had an opportunity to get to know Pershing pretty well. And if you are writing a guidebook to World War I battlefields, which means Western Europe, you're actually writing a guidebook for an area that we will be fighting over in 1944 and 45. So Eisenhower is really seriously studying this stuff. And his good friend, George Patton, comes with him and they go to Europe and they wander all over these battlefields. So they literally are in the places that they will later on be fighting. And they're thinking about it all. So Ike then comes back and he goes to the Army War College and now the National Defense University. And that's the most senior institution you go to. Graduates from there, is put back in charge of guidebook revision and serves in the European office in Paris, France. So again, notice He's learning the trade, and he's also learning the geography. He then comes back to serve as an executive officer to General George Mosley, who is the Assistant Secretary of War. Now, one of the things to notice about all this is Ike is learning about the politics of Washington, dealing with the news media, dealing with the Congress, dealing with the bureaucracy. All of these things are beginning to become part of his normal daily life. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. 
The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. In 1933, he's picked to be the chief military aide to General Douglas MacArthur, who's the Army Chief of Staff. MacArthur is a very, very famous name. His father, Arthur MacArthur, was a great hero of the Civil War and went on to a huge career in the Army. Douglas was going in the same direction, graduated from West Point, ended up winning the Congressional Medal of Honor as a combat leader in Europe had a very demanding standard, a very difficult personality. But Ike, as he proved again and again, was very good at managing very strong personalities. So he serves with, with MacArthur while he's Army Chief of Staff. And then MacArthur retires from the Army and has an offer to go to the Philippines to create the Philippine government's new army because we're trying to gradually wean the Philippines and prepare them for independence. In 1935, MacArthur turns and says to Eisenhower, will you come and be my assistant and my military advisor while we create the new Philippine Army? So now, having gotten a lot of knowledge about Europe, he's now getting knowledge about the Pacific. And in September 1935, he goes to the Philippines. He also learns how to fly because he figures that to be an all-round well-prepared person. He's already done tanks. Now he has a little bit of sense of, of air power and the requirements of aircraft. Even though it's the old army and even though it's relatively small and even though promotions are slow, by July of 1936, he gets to be a lieutenant colonel, which is for that army in that period, a pretty good rank. Then he's brought back home. Remember, he served with MacArthur. Eisenhower, years later, when people talked about speech writing, said, who do you think actually wrote most of the speeches that MacArthur gave to the Philippines? And it was Eisenhower. Eisenhower was a very, very good speechwriter and very good editor. So he comes back to the U.S. MacArthur offered him a lot of money and a big promotion in the Filipino Army if he would stay in the Philippines. He said, no, it's really time to go home. And in February 1940, he goes and is assigned to the West Coast to Fort Lewis, Washington, and really is helping develop the Army because now the Army is beginning to build up. The war is going badly in Europe for the Allies. It's increasingly obvious that we have to think seriously about dealing with Nazi Germany and potentially dealing with Imperial Japan. And so Eisenhower is part of the buildup. He's also a brilliant planner. And at one point, there's a huge army war game. Eisenhower's side decisively defeats the other side just because of the sheer quality of his planning capabilities. And then the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. Now, remember, we'd really been focused on looking at the problems in Europe, and we really had a deep preference for dealing with the Nazis. And then the Japanese are the ones who started the war with us. So on December 7, 1941, the Japanese attack. Eisenhower is brought to Washington to serve under the chief of war plans division, his old friend, General Leonard Giroux, known as G. Giroux to his friends, with whom Eisenhower had spent a year studying at Leavenworth. When he arrives, Marshall, he says, look, we have almost no ships. The war plans we've made are absurd. The Army had a plan that said we can hold out for three months until the Navy rescues us in the Philippines, and the Navy had a plan that said we can get to the Philippines in three years. Even though there was a joint planning board, they had never sat down and hatched out the extraordinarily radical difference in those two plans. He had MacArthur in the Philippines raising cane, yelling for attention, saying, I need help, I need help. You have the Japanese on offense everywhere. They've occupied Hong Kong. They've occupied Malaya. They are literally one of the most amazing offensives in history is the Japanese Navy in December and January and February of 1941-42. And in that context, Marshall turns to Eisenhower and says, what can we do? Remember, 
Eisenhower had served with many of the people who were in the Philippines, and he knew the Philippines very well. And all of his bias would have been to do everything you could to get help to him. And after about two weeks of studying the plan, he walks in and says to Marshall, there's nothing we can do. We can get some supplies in. We can have a trickle of ammunition and of other things. But the truth is, we don't have the naval sea power. We don't have the shipping. We don't have the manpower prepared. And if we tried to do too much, we would simply be serving enough to be destroyed by the Japanese. So the best we can do is ask them to hold out as long as they can, recognize that we are sacrificing them to buy time, and then prepare for a counterattack probably coming from Australia. First of all, think about how tough this must have been for a guy who is describing his personal friends. He's basically walking in and advocating, I'm going to abandon all the people I worked with for years because it is the only practical, doable thing. And my assignment is to give the chief of staff of the Army the best possible advice. And I'm going to give him the correct advice, even if it's unbelievably painful. I think that was a key moment in the rise of Eisenhower, because I think at that point, Marshall realized he had a man of enormous intelligence, tremendous training and background, who would in fact do what the nation needed and would allow the facts to define, not his emotions, but the facts to define what he was going to analyze and suggest. So by February of 1942, he becomes the chief of the War Plans Division, and General Giroux goes off to other assignment. In March of 42, he gets a promotion to Major General, which is temporary because in wartime, all these things are temporary. And you can revert back in rank after the war is over because you're taking a very small army. You are exploding its size by enormous numbers. And therefore, you're going to promote lots and lots of people, but those promotions may or may not stick. Eisenhower is called in by Marshall. And Marshall says, I want you to understand, Ike, that I know you were very frustrated in World War I because you never got to go to combat. I just want you to know that you are too valuable, and I'm going to keep you here in charge of the War Plans Division for the war, and you're not ever going to get to combat. And I'm sorry, I know that that will restrict your promotions. And I know it's not what you want to do, but it's what I think is best for the country. And for the only time I've ever been able to find, Eisenhower blows up at Marshall. Now, Eisenhower was enormously impressed with Marshall, understood that Marshall is probably the smartest guy in the Army, and that his reputation for integrity and for doing the right thing and for being a patriot was unbelievable. But this one time he blew up, and he just said, look, I don't care where you send me, and I don't care what you want me to do. Your job is to win the war. My job is to help you win the war. So you tell me where you think I can serve best, and I'm not ever going to complain. I'm just going to help win the war. Supposedly at that point, Marshall got a big grin and said, well, you passed the test, and I'm sending you to London. And so he is sent over in May of 42. Really, I think Marshall was trying to figure out, can I work with the English? Because the British are going to be the key to the war. And that means you have to understand them, work with them, and try to build a genuine coalition army where you're going to be on the same side and not be torn apart. World War I, that was a terrible coalition war. The French and the British did not trust each other. They didn't work together very well. They didn't plan together very well. And there was a huge desire to avoid all the mistakes that had been made in World War I. So Ike arrives in London and has a series of meetings. It was very calm, talks to people in a very practical way. He listened really well. And he asked good questions. And he would take seriously what people were telling him. At the time, 96% of the forces in Great Britain were British or Canadian. Some of them were were Poles, some of them were Dutch, who had fled from the Nazi occupation, so few free French. But the Americans were still tiny. We were coming. We're going to be much bigger. People could see it down the road. But at that moment, Eisenhower represented a hopeful future, not a powerful present. He begins to work with them. And because he's rising in authority, he has to rise in rank just to be able to deal with it. You can't have a major general 
trying to negotiate with a three or four star general with any kind of real success because he's just outranked. That's the way the military thinks. So by July of 42, Eisenhower is being promoted to lieutenant general. Now, this is really important because what's happened is Marshall wanted to go straight across. I mean, his whole model was that the United States will produce so many tanks, so many airplanes, that we ought to drive straight for the heart of Germany. We ought to land in France. Well, they had tried a raid with the Canadian unit. They had really gotten shot up badly. And the British had this deep memory of World War I and trench warfare. And they were really frightened of getting too deeply involved in Europe and ending up with another long, deep bloodletting like World War I. So Churchill was very resistant. And as a purely practical matter, it became obvious by summer that we just weren't producing enough forces and getting them to Europe fast enough to be able to mount the kind of campaign Marshall wanted to mount. So Churchill, meanwhile, wanted to lure us into the Mediterranean. The British were already fighting around Egypt. They thought if we could come in, the British and other forces on the western side coming in through Morocco and Algeria, that we would gradually cut off and crush Rommel and the Germans and their Italian allies. By midsummer, it was very clear that if we were going to fight in Europe in a serious way, we were going to have to fight by landing in North Africa. Now, this was a very bitter disappointment to Marshall. The Navy, of course, had cheerfully said, look, if you guys don't want to fight in Europe, that's fine. Give us the extra forces and we'll use them in the Pacific. Well, that galvanized Marshall into finding a way to fight in Europe. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Now they need a commander. And who's the one guy who's there? who already knows how to deal with the British, who's already proven to be a pretty good administrator and a pretty good planner, Dwight David Eisenhower. And so they say to Ike, this will be, in the early stages, a very heavily British operation. A fair number of Americans, but there'll also be a pretty good number of Brits. And for most of our folks, this will be their first time in battle. But for psychological and political reasons, we want an American commander, because we know that the French will go crazy if there's a British commander. The French official government, the Vichy government, as it was called, because it was located in the town of Vichy, actually was angry at the British for not surrendering, because it made them look bad. If the British had surrendered too, then everything would be cool. But the British insisted on fighting, and it just drove the French crazy. So you had some gradual emergence of people who were called the Free French, 
And they were the ones who were prepared to work with us to fight against the Germans. But the official French army and the official French navy was still committed to being sort of an ally of Germany against us. If we could pretend that it was an American landing with an American commander, that they would be less likely to fight. Now, it turned out in reality it didn't quite work, and there were some pretty sharp fights, particularly around Algiers. But that was the theory. So you had to have an American general in command. The American general who was available was named Dwight Eisenhower. And so he became the commander of the invasion of North Africa in early November 1942. This was the first really big American effort of the war. If you look at a map sometime, it is big. It runs all the way from the Atlantic coast of Morocco all the way into Algeria and has multiple landings, has tremendous shift of air power, has a pretty large fleet. They get reasonably good tactical surprise, which is itself amazing. Patton brings his forces straight from the U.S. They finish training, get on the ships, go to Morocco, get off the ship. That's their entry point into combat. No time to condition, no time to get used to things. They're just doing it. Luckily in Morocco, there's not much resistance, but there's pretty good fighting around Algiers. And the Germans, in what is really a strategic act of great stupidity, decide they're going to fight us, that although once we landed, it was clear that they were probably not going to be able to hold North Africa. But Hitler had in his mind this notion that you never give up any territory easily. And so he actually began pouring troops into North Africa and ultimately puts about 250,000 German troops in what is essentially an untenable position. And in the spring of 43, they surrender. It's one of the largest German surrenders of World War II. And Eisenhower's the guy who did it. He goes on to lead the occupation of Sicily. Then he goes on to occupy the southern part of Italy. And then he's told he's going to command the landing in Normandy. He leaves the Mediterranean, goes to London along with General Montgomery, who's the top British general, and they design the most complicated single operation of the war. And the fact is that the power they have and the respect the two of them have, they design a much bigger, much more complicated campaign landing far more forces. And there are moments in time when Eisenhower really takes on the establishment. For example, Eisenhower demands that all of the strategic bombers be used to cut off the railroads in France to cripple the Germans' ability to move forces to Normandy to try to stop us on the beaches. Churchill is terrified. He says, you know, in order to bomb the railroads, you're going to be bombing French civilians, and you could cause several hundred thousand casualties, and I don't want to be the person the French remember as having killed that many French civilians. And Eisenhower says, look, my job is to make sure that when we land, we use every asset we have to focus on being able to get to the beach and stay on the beach. So... General de Gaulle, who's the head of the Free French, comes in and says, look, if that's the cost of liberating France, I will broadcast in favor of it. You have to do it. And Churchill says, I really don't want to do this. And Eisenhower, he's actually very tough, pleasant, but tough. And so he turns to Churchill and he says, look, I'm sure you can find a general who will do that, but it won't be me. If I don't have control of the bombers, for the six weeks before the landing, I won't take responsibility for the invasion, and you'll have to find a replacement. Churchill knew that he could not go to Roosevelt and Marshall and say, I just forced Eisenhower to resign. And furthermore, he would have been required to take another American, because by then, the size of the American contribution to the war was so massive that it was clear that the Americans were increasingly in charge. So Churchill backs down, and we use the bombers the way Eisenhower wanted. The second big decision, which I think is one of the most courageous of the war, Eisenhower had concluded that we had to use paratroopers inland. And some of this is covered in the brilliant movie Saving Private Ryan. But he's decided that we have to land inland to have paratroopers help cut off the German reinforcements. Now, 
the top British Royal Air Force general said, you're going to put so many people in gliders and so many people in very slow moving transport planes that I think you're going to have 70% casualties. That is seven out of every 10 paratroopers is going to be killed before they ever land. And he said, I really beg you not to do it. And Eisenhower looked at it and he said, look, if I can only get 30% to land, that's 30% more than I have right now. And I have to do everything I can to make sure that in the crisis period, the first three or four days of the landing, that we have slowed down and stopped as many German reinforcements as possible. And I'll take the responsibility. So he ends up overruling the British Royal Air Force commander. He always had enormous respect for Marshall. And Marshall writes him and says, I, well, he considered landing much further inland because he was putting him in very close to the coast. And Marshall says, you know, if you were to put him in 30 or 40 or 50 miles deeper, you can create a fortified area and draw the Germans off to try to deal with them. And Iku, up until that point, had almost always done what Marshall recommended. Eisenhower at that point says, you know, that will not work. I think there's a very high likelihood that we could not get to them in time and they would all be massacred. And it doesn't solve my problem, which is how do I stop Germans from getting to the beaches? And so it's the first time I can remember in all that I've read about Marshall and Eisenhower. Eisenhower just flatly turns him down. And Marshall responds and says, look, you're in charge. You know what the details are over there. I don't. It was just an idea. And it's the first time you really see a psychological transfer of authority beginning between Ike and Marshall. This is the most complicated single thing humans have ever done. It's vastly harder than going to the moon. They're coordinating bombers, fighters, ships offshore, people landing, paratroopers coming in. This is a pre-computer age. All these things are being handled with paper. And it's really amazingly complex. And if you ever look at it, the clockwork they got out of this thing is just unimaginable. And then suddenly there's a problem. They have picked particular days because they want the tide to be just right. And they want the moon to be just right. And they're only a couple days every month. And if you don't land on the 4th, 5th, or 6th, you may have to wait until mid-July. And at the end of May, the weather turned terrible. They decide that they're going to check the weather out. And we have a huge advantage over the Germans. We have a weather station in Greenland. And the weather comes from the west. So we get about a two-day to three-day advance notice of probable weather. Let me emphasize the word probable, no guarantee. And they begin going through a series of tests where the weatherman will come in and say, our estimate is that two days from now, everything will be fine. And now they're faced with the weather's really bad. Now, ironically, and nobody had actually planned this, because the weather's so bad and because the Germans have no weather station to the west, the Germans assume it's impossible to land. So the Germans actually have senior officers all over the place. They're in a relaxed status because, after all, the great landing can't be occurring now because look how bad the weather is. And the guys come in and say, Dyke, you have to cancel the 5th of June. Now, they're already prepared. They're already loading on ships. They're all ready to go. And Ike has to cancel. And they do. But they stay on the ships. And they're really worried because now... When you start moving that many hundred thousand people, are the Germans going to figure this out? So on the 5th, they get the report from the weatherman. And Eisenhower listens, goes over and sits on the couch, thinks about everything he's learned from these practice runs, and thinks about the difficulty of not going until July, and they're almost certain that the Germans will learn about it by July. And the morale cost of bringing all those people back and taking them off the ships and sending them back to trading. And he looks up and he says, go. Now, he's the only person who can make that decision. He then has in his pocket a note which says, despite the best efforts of the Allied forces, 
Our efforts at landing failed today and the responsibility is entirely mine. And he carries that around with him for two days. One last pre-landing example, Eisenhower goes to visit some of the paratroopers. Now remember, he's been told that there's a chance 70% of these nice young guys are all gonna be dead before they even land. And he's going to visit them because he has nervous energy and he wants, for morale reasons, he thinks it's good for the commanding general to show up. There's a very famous picture of Eisenhower talking to a young guy and he has his hands in front of his face and his right hand forms a particular way of being held. And for years, I'd wondered what that was. And I finally went out to the Eisenhower Museum one day and I asked them, what is this all about? They said, well, actually, Eisenhower would ask every soldier, where are you from? He gets to a guy from Michigan. And Ike says, I used to go to Michigan to fish for trout. And I said, oh, yeah, I fish up there, too. And so Eisenhower is actually holding his hand, showing him how he would use the fly to do fly fishing in Michigan. And that's all it is. But it showed you one of Eisenhower's great strengths, which was an ability to relate to everyday people. And so at this point in his career, he makes the biggest single decision he'll ever make, which is to land. And the next time we revisit Eisenhower, I'm going to pick up with this, but I think the most appropriate way to end part one in our three-part series on why Eisenhower truly is historically immortal and it's worth endless study. I'm going to leave you in his own voice with Eisenhower and what he said to the troops about the landing, because I think you'll understand the sense of pride and the sense of moral determination that young Americans had when they landed on the beaches and in the hedgerows of Normandy. So listen to Dwight Eisenhower and we'll come back and we'll have a future visit with Eisenhower for the rest of the war and then a third visit for Eisenhower as President of the United States. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940-41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle, man to man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. You can read more about President Dwight David Eisenhower on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, and our producer is Garnsey Sloan. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. Please email me with your questions at gingrich360.com questions. I'll answer them in future episodes. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. On the next episode of Newt's World, Lee Smith has a new book coming out on Tuesday, The Permanent Coup. He'll join me to talk about the book and the deep state's zeal to bring down President Trump. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s, dance away with hip-hop beats, and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.